want to acknowledge the uh, dinner prep people and the cleanup people for once again doing such a great job. Just been wonderful over the years to have this low-key way, not to have to spend a lot of money catering our meals, but just to figure out how to feed ourselves without creating a lot of unnecessary tension. So it felt really smooth from my perspective. Thanks also to the cooks who prepared the food. Any business that needs to be attended to that questions about the nuts and bolts that we should address? Please, okay, please ring the bell. Let me know if you can't hear my voice. So we'll continue our uh, discussion on the precepts and a way of using the precepts not as a rigid set of rules that we, like a preteen or teenager, likes to bump up or challenge or see what they can get away with. So we can use the precepts in this way And I'm sure you have that same kind of conditioning that I have when I have a new rule for myself like, no, I'm not going to do this, then I tend to immediately do that. (laughs) And we feel that way both whether it's imposed internally from ourselves or externally. And a lot of this juvenile behavior I think arises from relating to life in a, in a somewhat superficial way. So we're giving or creating rules or <clears throat> taking up rules from the outside that we don't really understand. We don't understand. Uh, we're not reflecting deeply about happiness. In the Dhammapada, there's a a well-known verse. It goes like this. As a merchant carrying great wealth in a small caravan avoids a dangerous road, as someone who loves life avoids poison, so should you avoid evil deeds. So initially, we use the precepts and generally this practice of sila, ethical conduct, living in harmony, we use it to um, support this deep desire to be happy. That's really what it's about. It's not about, we don't actually have a deep desire to be perfect or to be better than. All of those ideas of getting somewhere, it's because we want to be happy. So, this practice of reflecting non-harming and non-harming, greed and non-greed, it's really about uh, 
supporting this deep desire to be happy. And it comes out of actual insight that we have from life, from living our life. More than probably any insight, the, the, the foundational insights as human beings have uh, enough support in their lives so they're not completely overwhelmed by the details of life. The first insight that dawns on the human mind is that it is possible to create health for myself and it is possible to create the conditions for real happiness for myself. Right? Now, when people are overwhelmed by life, they don't think this way. When they bump up against a life experience that's hellish, they just assume it's somebody else's fault. Life is screwing me over again. And when things, you know, something really good happens, you know, maybe they think the lucky stars or something, but they don't, human beings generally, when they're overwhelmed, we don't, understand, oh, well, this arose due to causes and conditions, this happiness, this state of ease and well-being. It isn't an accident. It isn't random. So, assuming that we all have enough confidence in this insight that it is possible for this mind to create hell for itself. Hell. Hell. Yeah, H-E-L-L, create suffering for itself. And it is possible for this mind to support real happiness. Then all of a sudden, sila becomes relevant. You know, like how to think and speak and act. Or how to be, participate in a way that supports happiness and not hell or suffering. Because we've begun to take responsibility for our experience. We're not blaming or projecting causes outside of ourselves. So sila, or living ethically, committing to non-harming, is... It's like the characteristic of a mature human being that understands that it's possible to set in motion happiness. It's not a neurotic, you know, I'll be in trouble if I'm mean or nobody will like me. It's not that kind of um, mixed up view. It's very pragmatic. It's just understanding the lawfulness of life. As I said yesterday, you know, does anybody doubt that, I'll read what Hajan Amaro says about this, you know, does anybody doubt if we take life, if we misappropriate things, if we take advantage of others through our sexuality or by living indulgently, if we are deceitful or aggressive, harmful with speech, now, does anybody doubt that pain will follow from that? He says, then pain intrinsically will follow. In the opening verses of the Dhammapada, it says, 
If you speak or act with a corrupt mind, then pain will follow like the wheels of the cart that follow the ox that pulls it. The Buddha referred to these precepts as a natural or genuine virtue. I'm wondering if a lot of the reason life seems complicated is more about we don't want to understand the simple rules because they, by, by coming into alignment with the simple rules in life, you know, we have to live in a way we don't want to live. We have to change the way we live. So we imagine all these other more complicated, take up these more complicated ideas about how to be happy. Like for example, you know, maybe our experience has shown us that contentment, not contentment that we'll have when we get what we want, but contentment with what contentment with what we already have. That that's a, a very direct, powerful way to be happy, contentment with what we already have. But do you notice in our mind now, maybe even, we don't, we don't want to take up that path to happiness. We have a strong investment that we'd rather have the happiness that comes when we get, with, get what we want as opposed to the happiness that we can have by being content with what we have in our life, content with this life. I've been playing with this quite a bit over the last many years now. Having what seemed to me to be good reasons to get some land in the country and have a little retreat cabin, get out of town a couple of times a month, do a couple day retreats a couple times a month. just seems like such a good idea. And I mean that. I think it is a good idea in a lot of ways. But the problem arises when... Um, I can't really be content with my life as it is because this idea hasn't manifested yet. And part of that idea is when this idea, when this comes to be, then I'll be happy. But can't there be a good idea without being dependent on it coming to be? So. So it doesn't mean that we don't have aspiration or good ideas from time to time, but we're not uh, we're not putting aside our happiness now, the causes for happiness now. We're interested in the causes for happiness now. I forget who it was that said uh, defined sila this practice of 
reflecting, developing, non-harming, reflecting on and developing non-harming, or this integrity, or this reverence for life, understanding the basic rules of life, like coming, uh, relating with integrity, relating in a way that we respect life, leads to happiness, being careless about life, leads to suffering. They define this as habit without conflict. You know, so Sila really generally points to this this relative or conventional world we live in where there's good and bad. So how can we have, you know, habit energy, mental conditioning, without conflict, living in alignment. So uh, later, I think in the same article, Ajahn Armo talks about, you know, the precepts, they're not something specific to Buddhism. They're part of, he says they're part of a natural order. They aren't imposed as, Buddhist, as a Buddhist idea nor are they unique to the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha pointed out that they are innate to the human condition. And then he goes on, says what I read earlier, you know, if you take life, if you cheat still, pain will follow. Just as the ox cart follows the ox. This is just the way that it is. If we live with integrity, with kindness, patience and forgiveness, if we take turns, if we share, then happiness follows. And this is something that we're being asked to mine from our life, to sort of reflect on our life and distill these basic principles. And not only our own life, but we can see it around us too. You know, even in terms of our relationship with our pets. If we can let the, the characteristics of our pet disturb us and irritate us. Or we can just understand that it's like this. We can have a non-contentious relationship with our pet. We can have that broad and deep understanding that recognizes that the pet is doing this because of causes and conditions. It's not actually being mean to me or it's not actually trying to irritate me. And you can just substitute, you know, your boss, your employee, your partner, your parent in the same way. A lot of you know that story from the Buddhist tradition about you know, bumping into a boat in the middle of the night, rowing across the Ganges River, bumping into a boat, getting furious that the other <coughs> person rowing the, that boat wasn't paying attention. You know, here you've got a big light on your boat, they should have seen you and gotten out of the way, only to realize when you take a good look that there's nobody in that boat. And immediately the anger falls away. And this is something important, this uh, 
divisive, contentious relationship with the world depends on some idea that there's somebody to blame. I can blame life, I can blame this person, I can blame myself. But the mind has to conceive, construct somebody who's at fault in order to whip up and maintain that kind of anger. So last night I said, uh, for those who weren't here, you know, that the idea for this retreat in particular, but just generally in the Buddhist tradition, the idea is that we take up the precepts as a devotional activity, both a wisdom reflection, but also something we deeply respect. Especially in Theravada Buddhism, you know, the teachings and insight are what's really... uh, held up as objects or things worthy of devotion. So this is an actual insight. And, you know, we could build an, if we could, we would build an altar to this insight that my intentions, my actions matter. How I am, how I'm relating, it really matters. And from from this relative point of view, we have this powerful force of concern you know, Hiri Otapa the Pali fra- is a Pali phrase for this powerful, the, the Buddha called this the power that holds the world together, Hiri Otapa, this power of concern, where we understand how easy it is for human beings to create a lot of suffering. I mean, one of the few advantages of being in this 24-hour news cycle, where we have access to amazing, way too many sources of news. But one of the advantages is we can see over and over and over again how uh, people cause their lives to implode due to unskillful behavior. Cruising along through life, they may be one of those beautiful people with a lot of natural resources, intelligence, good looks, good birth, you know, all those classic things that can support life, and then they do something really stupid, and everything falls apart, and they really suffer. You know, shame, humiliation, blame, embarrassment. You just think about how many falls we see each week, you know, somebody falling from grace into hell. So the power of uh, concern, like we understand that we're not immune from these big mistakes. We're not immune from doing something stupid like uh, getting lost in resentment when we're driving a car and being a really lousy driver and being part of a terrible accident that forever changes our life or the life of another person or actually can lead to the death. Or just saying something that's inappropriate because we're being careless. So this this is a powerful and useful force. It's, It's kind of the tiger mom that understands that 
um, what we do matters. And if we let ourselves um, give up, you know, just sort of a classic example, you know, where that hovering mother or father, you know, isn't going to let their kid give up. What do you mean give up? (laughs) You're going to do this again until you get it right. Because maybe they're just crazy, or maybe, you know, in in the positive point of view, maybe they are seeing something in that moment where they understand that letting the mind, you know, fall into that pattern of giving up has consequences. And as things unfold, it will be only easier and easier when things are difficult to give up until it becomes part of the person's character. This belief that I can't, it's too hard, it's too much. So we want to recognize it's true already for us. Like, for example, the way you know that this, this force that the Buddha says holds the world together, the way you know that it's already active in our mind is think about, we do it unconsciously, but just think about how many times we have refrained from unskillful behavior. I mean, it happens all the time that we're inclined, but we don't. Because somehow the mind intuits danger. Honey, don't go there. That's not going to help. You know, whether it's last night when, you know, you wanted to go home and turn the TV on, but you remembered, oh, you know, I'm on retreat and I really, really want to take a break. You know, and the mind just said no. You know, in all the countless little and big ways that restraint has saved our butt over and over and over again. Whether it's from, you know, some casual flirting that might have led to an affair that would have been so destructive of a good relationship that you have. And all the ways that we avoided pitfalls through the force of Hiri Otapa, that wholesome concern. So we want to respect that power in our mind that is awake and learning from life's lessons, you know, awake enough that we're actually distilling some principles from life. And then that those principles operate as a kind of uh, wholesome remorse, wholesome concern that just gets activated. It's like radar. When we're in a situation that reminds us about another situation from our past that caused a lot of pain, that pain from the past, it's like an alarm clock. It just goes off. Oh, yeah. I see what could happen here, you know? This could happen again like it happened before. Honey, be careful. Pay close attention to your motivation, to your intentions, to what you're about to do. So this is why uh, this is why there's an emphasis on making the precepts a devotion, literally like you might bow down to God or whatever you're inclined to bow down to. Well, we want to bow down to this basic insight. And in Buddhism, it's it's like the first real insight into where we could say we actually have some wisdom. It's the wisdom of cause and effect, understanding cause and effect 
understanding a little bit about how things unfold so then we can more skillfully participate in this world that unfolds lawfully. We're not blindly you know, falling into really terrible situations and hopefully blindly falling, falling into really pleasant or good situations, but we have some sense about how it all works. And so we can skillfully, we can say finally that I have some skill. So I can apply that skill in the moment. A lot of times in Buddhist practice, because we're reading of a, sort of a deeper or more profound level of wisdom, where we hear things like everything is just unfolding naturally, causes and conditions empty of any essential self or unfolding and our job is just to release into that impersonal, conditional unfolding and let things be. We hear things like that and it's true. But it's only true when we're actually understanding that. And that truth does it not in any way take away from this other truth that what we do matters. What the mind does matters. Motivations, intentions matter. If the mind has the intention to kill, to steal, to harm, there are very real, unavoidable consequences. Andy Olensky, uh, some of you have heard this story, but I'll just repeat it because it's interesting, but uh, he's the... uh, senior scholar and director of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and has taught here a couple times, wonderful teacher, and uh, talks about one Saturday morning or whatever, and they were doing a kitchen remodel. I think Andy was doing it himself at their house, and a skunk had somehow gotten into the house, and uh, Andy very quickly assessed that it was rabid. Um, And he had young kids uh, with him in his house, his kids, and um, and so uh, you know, he just had woken up. He was in his underwear, and uh, somehow they he got it out of the house. It was the kitchen was somehow exposed, and it had gotten in. And then somehow they got it out. It was running around, and he thought about just letting it go. And then he realized that well, this is a danger to you know other people. That he had to, if he could, to kill it. So he had his son get him his son's little bow and arrow that he had. And so Andy, you know, was chasing down this rabbit skunk, or maybe the skunk was coming toward him. But anyway, but the thing is, he noticed that even though it made a lot of sense in his mind, that that it wasn't easy, it wasn't possible actually to kill the skunk without hating it. And this is the this is the kind of investigation we want to do. The next time you're dealing with spiders or rodents or aphids or you know anything that we generally feel justified in killing, like you know Andy was in a sense, from one perspective, doing a noble thing to the town, for the town people, um, to get rid of that rabbit's uh, skunk. But. Uh, The question is, the important thing is, what is happening in our mind? What's being set in motion in the mind? 
And what are the consequences of that? So we want to be able to to play in both of these worlds, the wisdom side, the sort of deeper, more profound wisdom side, where we understand that everything is just happening. There's no center, there's nobody. There may be consequences, but there's nobody who's going to receive the consequences of action, of, of intention. So that's one end. And touching, actually touching that understanding allows for a more natural non-harming to arise. Because when we touch that freedom, that peace, even for a moment, there's a a kind of contentment, like a, a feeling of deep trust that there wouldn't be, for a while at least, there wouldn't be any motivations to harm because the feeling that's left is of peace and contentment and ease and lightness. Not, not a strong feeling there's somebody who needs or somebody who needs to be defended or something that needs to be fixed. It doesn't, the mind wouldn't have those attitudes or views that would more naturally lead to the intention to harm or to steal. So, we cultivate that wisdom, but we also cultivate this understanding of cause and effect directly. And we practice holding that responsibility and holding both views, like the great saint Padma Sambhava, the person, one of the people who brought Buddhism to Tibet way back over a thousand years ago, said, although my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So we can understand both. That vast view, it's just stuff happening, coming and going, no center. And who would have a problem being attentive to the law of karma, of cause and effect? It's like, you know, the the classic way a Buddhist gets in trouble is they have some intuition or maybe even some real insight into emptiness and then in a misguided way think that it doesn't matter what I do now because it's all empty. There's no self behind action. You know, and maybe justifies that idea, not the actual experience, justifies a lot of unskillful behavior. But it's a misunderstanding because who's, uh, who needs, where's the person that uh, doesn't want to restrain themselves? Like who's afraid of restraining themselves from unskillful behavior? Where's the problem? So that way we can be you know, on the one hand, we can be, have at least moments of real liberation where, we, in a sense, we transcend the rules, you know, like the rules as a rigid construct. I shouldn't drink, you know, I shouldn't eat meat, I shouldn't laugh, 
<laughs> you know, or whatever. <laughs> Show joy. Sometimes, no, really, sometimes people say, will say to me, you know, you guys just don't seem to have any joy here. <laughs> because a lot of times when people start developing mindfulness, they're a little overwhelmed by what they see. And this hiriotapa, the sense of concern, gets a little too strong. But we're afraid of doing something wrong. But that's doing something wrong, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's getting tight. Like afraid of making mistakes is a mistake. Right? Because it's fear. It's aversion. It's a kind of violence or aggression. Like, I can't be the one who makes mistakes. So that's why we have to really balance both. We need some insight into the deeper freedom. That it's just stuff happening. And a transcendence of the rules. And then that really helps us learn how to hold the rules. How to play with the rules skillfully. Not see them as some kind of weight. If we just see rules like, thou shall not kill. (laughs) You know, we, we phrase that in Buddhism, it's, we undertake the training to refrain from harming or killing. So it's a training, it's something we're reflecting on. We don't actually expect to get through life without killing. I don't think it's possible. How could we get through life without killing? Some of you know about Jainism, this other religion that uh, came to be around the same time Buddhism, or that the Buddha taught back in ancient India. And there's a real strong emphasis on non-harming in Jainism to the point where, you know, they're always filtering the water and sweeping the path in front of them so they wouldn't, by chance, accidentally step on a little creature that they couldn't see. And it becomes, you know, I would imagine, really tight to think that to find deep happiness, one has to get through life without harming any living being. Because how do we eat? And you know, even if we're vegetarians, even if we're vegans, so much of the cultivation of plants involves harming. And what about the plants themselves? You know, they don't want to be cut down and eaten necessarily. So, life eats life. That just seems to be how it is. So how do, we, how do we really land with these rules, take them up, and still have joy, still feel alive? Well, we need to understand both emptiness, the absolute, and the relative. In a relative world, we live with these rules. You know, we live in communities that have rules, ways of relating And if we don't respect those rules, a lot of suffering happens. But if we get tight about these rules, we can use them to hate ourselves and hate other people, which obviously wouldn't be, wouldn't work. Others. Um, but the, you know, 
and state and aim statement, you can't kill without the hating. It seemed like just, you know, just so much self arising at that moment. And so I'm, I'm, just, I'm a little confused. Is that the balance you're saying that's hard to walk or? Well, I don't know. I mean, it would really depend on what was going on in Andy's head at the time. I think, you know, I think what would, uh, what would be interesting is if in that moment where he understood, maybe, I don't know if it happened in hindsight, but let's say it happened in the moment there, getting close, getting what was going on in his mind as he was about to let go of the arrow, getting that contraction, that desire to kill. Um, and that, and what would be interesting is if in that moment, in a sense, there was an understanding that accepted the karma, the unavoidable karma of doing this action, understanding it both from a relative and an absolute level. In a relative level, suffering will be set in motion for this action. Now, maybe some real, something good was also being set in motion. Right by taking care of this problem that needed to be taken care of, being the one who was appropriate to take care of this problem. But maybe even also understanding it from an absolute level, like although this so-called negative karma is being set in motion, the mind understands that it's not going to land anywhere. There isn't anybody who owns this karma. Like that says in the Path of Purification, this ancient Buddhist manual. Uh, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. So that would be interesting to know. We could ask Andy next. You can ask Andy next well, time you see him. You know, when I, when I heard Andy, I've heard Andy tell that story. Mm-hmm. And he talked about that what, what, what was really difficult for him was that he, you know, he had so long practiced not harming and how right. to overcome that. And it was actually one of his kids that said, you've got to do this. Uh-huh. Um, but, but he was really having trouble doing it. Yeah. And, and like uh, some of you know, any rigidity is harmful because life doesn't fit rigid rules. Yeah, Ellis. So would it be possible to have the same action but do it out of love? I mean, like, wouldn't it be possible to have the same I don't know. I think that's a, a, that should be a reflection. Um, Can you kill from love, place of love? I'm not saying, I can definitely see how love could be involved, like caring for the community at large could be involved. But in that moment of aiming and letting go, I'm not sure it can come out of love. I think it can come out of understanding, but I'm not sure it can come out of love. Because, you know, one of the things of, of understanding life is understanding this life, does, even in its miserable condition, does not want to end. No, I know probably several people in this room, given, you know, statistics, you know, some of you probably put down pets and maybe even were there. And maybe you can, you know, share a little bit about how that was for you. Because... 
it's just interesting, and I don't, I don't know if it's important that we go into a deep conversation about this specific point. I think the bigger point is understanding that the reflection on non-harming needs to involve this very, uh, this relative view and this more absolute view, and to just, just to hold it, because. Uh, That's a very, I mean, that can be a very noble, beautiful um, experience to take up some so-called negative karma, meaning something unpleasant will follow from this, but to do it, like Alice is suggesting, from love or uh, for some noble motivation. Go ahead. Uh, Andy wrote another article right after 9 11 saying uh, the question of the article was was it okay to protect ourselves in that situation? And, you know, and he didn't answer it in that particular situation, but he did answer the question that sometimes you must protect yourself, but you also must understand you have to take on the karma. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. So nobody's saying you can't kill or can't defend, but. but that doesn't exempt people from karma because whatever is going on in the mind, it's not so much the action, it's what's going on in the mind that's setting the karma. Well, it depends depends uh, what is actually there. I mean, we can have that belief, but sometimes that belief is a protection for ourselves. You know, so we have that belief because we want to have that belief, but we actually have to see what's going on in the moment that we're involved in that activity. We have to look, and see, we don't want to look. Actually, we want to be assured. Now, this, uh, the last thing I want to do, because I haven't been involved in that situation, is set up conditions where people are going to judge themselves. But I do think it's important for people to reflect deeply on all of our activities, on the decisions we make about eating food, the decisions we make about consumption, how we speak and relate to other people. And this is part of this you know, that I sort of jokingly called the tiger mom, but this hiri octopus, it's just understanding from a relative point of view, it is a heavy responsibility to be a human being or to be alive and to understand that actions have consequences. And generally, we're going to get really tight about it, and that tightness itself will be a cause for suffering unless we cultivate deeper insight that brings in space and perspective to this very real uh, sort of karmic situation we find ourselves in, having to make difficult choices around pets, around consumption, around livelihood. I mean, I grew up being fed from the money earned from my father who worked in the defense industry his whole life. You know, part of a company that made, you know, the different weapon systems. 
I mean, this is this is the world we live in. That uh, we're all, you know, all of us are citizens of a nation that has, for a long time, been engaged in a lot of bombing, killing. Now, you could, we could have all kinds of arguments about whether that was noble or not. But the fact is that our money is supporting killing and in all kinds of ways, in ways that we don't even know about too, I'm sure. So what is, like, uh, do we have the right to just uh, pretend that it ain't so? Or does it help if we just get neurotic about it, you know, or judgmental about it? So what is that right balance? And I think the, the right balance is just to understand that uh, it's really nice to uh, cultivate the understanding around harming and non-harming, like to distill it until it's very clear. And this clarity is coming from our actual lived experience, where we're, we just know in our bones, like, oh yeah, this is what's important. And then we bring that into each moment of our life, understanding that life is complicated and messy, and we won't uh, uh, we won't be able to get through life without wounds, without karma. And a lot of people misunderstand the path that the Buddha set out as a path of like being free from karma, like uh, totally not creating any new karma and totally digesting the old karma. So whatever unskillful actions we've committed in the past, we receive the consequences of those actions and we're no longer creating any new karma, so then we're fully enlightened because there's no more karma left. But that's not, certainly not my understanding. It's not so much that we reach the end of karma. In fact, I think the Buddha said something like, you can't fathom the beginnings of karma or the the stream of, of un, let's call it unfinished business that you're dragging along, that this mind stream is drag, dragging along. You can't fathom it. And if you try to, you go crazy. What, what frees the heart is the transformation of our relationship to the karma, to the unfinished business. When we're taking it personally, then it feels like this. <laughs> when we have a different relationship to karma, to the unfinished business, the fruit of action, then it's a different experience. Does that make sense? So, you know, in terms of sila practice, we have both restraint and the positive ideal. So this is in the world, the relative world of good and bad. Like we we have some basic principles we've come to understand, like harming, sets in motion suffering. Non-harming sets in motion happiness. And so we, we use those ideas, those uh, like signposts to help us through life. And then the other is this, this insight into a more natural kind of way of relating or sila, where non-harming 
isn't a strategy like I'm trying not to harm others, but we're realizing non-harming as a natural result of the mind not clinging to anything. So it's the consequence of the mind not being caught by experience. So we could say there's two avenues towards skillfulness. One avenue involves tension. I want to be skillful. I want to avoid being unskillful. I'm going to be really careful. I'm going to look carefully. I'm going to reflect deeply. Like the Buddha taught his son, you know, reflect before you speak, before you think, before you act, you reflect. Is this going to cause harm to me or another? While you're thinking, speaking, acting, you should be reflecting. Is this going to cause harm to me, for me or another? After you've spoken or acted, you should reflect. Did this cause harm for me or another? So that's that relative world. And then the other is just to, it's a realization or a discovery, you know, where we see um, the purity of thought, word, and action arising when the mind isn't caught up in self-centered drama. It's like in uh, the Buddhist uh, tradition, it's said that arahats, beings that are fully enlightened, can't break the precepts. It's just not possible. <coughs> That's sort of an interesting idea. So when there isn't any greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind, what would breaking the precepts look like? And there's a famous story of a arahat at the time of the Buddha who was doing his walking practice and he was blind. He was walking back and forth and there was, you know, in the tropics, a stream of ants. Maybe you've seen them. They're like rivers, little rivers of ants moving. He didn't realize it, so he was walking back and forth and stepping on this stream of ants from time to time. And the, some of the younger monks, less developed in their practice, saw this and ran to the Buddha, you know, to tattletale. <laughs> you know, and the Buddha says something like, you know, yes, this guy is an arahat. He's not capable of breaking the precepts. And you are idiots for not telling him that there was a stream of ants, <laughs> which he couldn't see so that he wouldn't be stepping on the ants. <laughs> so it's not that killing doesn't happen, but there isn't the intention to kill. That wouldn't arise in our arhat's mind, or the intention to steal, or the intention to harm uh, with you know, sex, or with speech, or by intoxicating the mind. It just wouldn't occur. And so this would be interesting. So when those things do occur, Maybe we can notice that they're arising out of a contracted state of mind, not a liberated state of mind, not an expanded state of mind, but a narrow state of mind. We just see if that's true. Like, you know, when we, um, you know, are attracted to somebody, start flirting with somebody who's already involved in a relationship or were already involved in a relationship, committed relationship, you know, just notice if that flirting is coming from an expanded, deep, broad state of mind or from a constricted state of mind. You know, this is fun. This is exciting. You know, for me, you know, that's the contracted part. 
or any kind of greediness or aversion, you know, can that arise from a contracted state of mind? I mean, from a, a liberated, expanded state of mind. Ajahn Mahabharata has this wonderful line about how the uh, Hiri Otapath, this, this basis of concern born from our direct experience, he says, this is what makes us different than dogs in heat. And <clears throat> Some of you, <coughs> I guess we don't see them as much as we used to, but when I was in Asia, um, I think of 2001, I'm practicing that... Uh, kind of in the country we had a big meditation hall and it was floor to ceiling screen screens and, and then there were platforms right up against the edge so we had this you know huge screen that you would sit next to on this raised platform and there were these bands of dogs semi-wild I'm sure they were somewhat taken care of by the villagers but just sort of roaming around and it was that time uh, that uh dogs would go into heat and then the males would compete to um, have intercourse with the, with the female dog and they would fight of course and they'd be in the act itself and fending off the other male dogs and this went on for days and days just a few feet from where I was meditating because they, they just would be all over the place but inevitably sometimes they'd be right there and this just amazing violence and probably greed, I mean, strong desire. And, you know, they'd get really, you'd see the male dogs, they were all bitten up, you know, ears torn and just kind of a real mess. I mean, it was very tragic. It was hard to bear. Even when it was 100, 200 feet away, just the, the loud sounds and the screams and the yapping, yelping, it was really hard to, it was hard to bear. And so the question is why, I mean, humanity, we have our problems, but we're, our civilized ways, you know, we've, we've avoided, we avoid some of that. There was a recent article that made the rounds in the internet world. I forget who it was, but some academic did some research about the amount of violence. Anybody catch that? And just saying that for the last couple hundred years, as much as they can tell, you know, the amount of violence, however they calculated that, has been going down. Just as a counterweight to the perception that the world is going to hell and fast, right? Isn't that often how we feel? But the fact of the matter is that one of the things that have been that has been developing, I think, in the human world, is this sense of concern and restraint, because we've learned that just sort of a rule without laws, where basically the person with the biggest gun or the biggest bicep, you know, gets his or her way doesn't work very well for anybody. And even the person, like there's another, maybe Amy, you sent this to me, uh, 
series on primates and uh, stress. They, they did studies of bamboo, ba- baboons, baboons. Sorry, sir. And uh, the question was, you know, it's very hierarchical. And the question is, who has more stress? The lowly, uh, lower males that aren't at the top of the heap, or the the number one male? And it's actually the number one male has the most stress and then the chronic diseases that come from it, from that constant stress. So this, this having to defend ourselves and, and uh, fight and always be wondering what's around the corner, it's oppressive. So this is why the Buddha said that this force really holds the world together. And it's really born from this understanding of reverence for life. And it seems paradoxical that we would revere life and at the same time be developing an understanding that there's no center to this life. It doesn't belong to anybody. And this is the real art of practice, I think, is the relative and the absolute understanding that there isn't actually a center to what we call life or this life. And at the same time, it's skillful for us to revere life. It works to revere life, to respect life. And this is, this is how morality works in Buddhism. Morality is pragmatic. It's something that we can directly experience. It's not like handed down from a deity that tells us what's right and wrong. It's something that comes from the ground up, from paying attention. We realize that reverence for life makes sense. It's pragmatic. It leads to happiness. We don't need somebody to tell us that we should revere life. We just need to pay attention. And we begin to appreciate that life should be revered, should be taken care of as much as we possibly can. Even though it's impossible to do it perfectly, we commit ourselves to it, (coughs) taking care of all beings. So maybe we'll leave it here. Let's take a couple breaths together. I'll leave more time for discussion tomorrow night. Um, And of course, in the small groups would be an appropriate time if you have any comments from your own reflections on sila. So thanks for listening. And we'll have a walking practice now and then one more sit to finish the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.